Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gap Fest is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash political and using the promo code POLITICAL. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click, and they have an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. And by Credit Karma. Do not pay for your credit score. With Credit Karma, you can get your credit report right now absolutely free. Just visit creditkarma.com slash save to get started. There are no strings attached and no credit card is required. Creditkarma.com slash save. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 22nd, 2016, the Squirmishes edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. We have complicated geography this week. I am in New York. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is somewhere else. Where are you, John Dickerson? Well, I was supposed to be somewhere else, but all this weather made me in the boring place of Washington, D.C. And then Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine... Oh, maybe you're just in New Haven. Maybe I'm the only one with complicated geography. <laughs> yeah, you're excited Sorry. that you're in a new place. But I'm in I'm a new not. place. On this week's GabFest, has the Republican race narrowed down to just Trump and Cruz? Then Iran releases American prisoners. America releases Iranian assets. Sanctions are lifted. What could go wrong? Then the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. What have we learned from this catastrophe? We'll have cocktail chatter also, and in Slate Plus, we'll talk about the Supreme Court taking the big immigration case regarding President Obama's immigration powers, immigration reform powers. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. It is a year until the inauguration of President Donald Trump, 363 days from today. This week, he was endorsed by Sarah Palin. There is a meltdown among the GOP pundit class. David Brooks is calling for adults to take over. Mike Gerson is in a panic. Pete Wainer says that Donald Trump would pose a profound threat to the Republican Party. Mike Gerson said it would mark a massive ideological and moral revision of the GOP. Meanwhile, people say that Ted Cruz would be just as much of a disaster. Senator Bob Dole, the former Republican presidential nominee and Senate leader, said that a Cruz nomination would be cataclysmic for the GOP. And yet, and yet, Emily Bazelon, Ted Cruz (laughs) and Donald Trump are the clear leaders going into the last week before Iowa. They are, if anything, pulling away from the rest of the field. What's going on? And has it become just them? I don't think it has become just them because some establishment candidate is going to emerge from the wreckage of Iowa and New Hampshire, even if it's just one of the people in third place. It's going to be 
you know, Rubio or maybe Kasich lately having a moment, or I guess you could imagine Bush or Christie, although I can't. So we're going to end up with at least three people, but it is really interesting to watch the establishment part of the party freak out because these two people who are in the, the anger lane, the outsider lane we've been talking to for months are really the ones who are capturing the imagination of the voters and they are doing it in a sustained way. I mean, John, I'm interested in whether you think there's still a sense that when people actually cast their ballots or go to vote in the caucuses in Iowa that they'll somehow like, I don't know, have a reality check moment? I don't know. I don't know that it'll happen in, in Iowa. I mean, you, reality check, I was just wrestling with the term reality check, because the fact that Donald Trump and Ted Cruz are at the top of the polls now, nationally and at least in Iowa, is is the reality. I mean, and it's a couple of different realities. One, it's that that state has always been a state where activists, the more conservative part of the party, have run the show, as opposed to, say, a state like Ohio and Florida. So, and the reality now is that those activists have all the energy in the party. So you would expect those kind of candidates to do well, particularly Cruz. That's why Huckabee and, and Santorum did well in the state before. The more representative portion of the Republican Party, the larger portion of the party in which those activists, and particularly the evangelicals in Iowa, play a little bit of a smaller role, starts to come in once you get to the 15th of March. The problem for any candidate who would hope to appeal to those kind of voters is they have to wait till the 15th of March. The calendar is really front-loaded in a way that helps Trump and Cruz. And the problem still for the non-Trump and Cruz voter uh, candidates is that they're splitting the heck out of their votes. So one minute it looks like John Kasich is doing well in New Hampshire, then it looks like Jeb Bush is doing well, then it looks like Chris Christie's doing well, and then Marco Rubio. They keep trading places. That's the thing that'll be the most interesting, both see who comes in third in Iowa, and if they come in third in a way that's transferable, can they say they've gotten some kind of a validation from the voters, and then can that be taken to New Hampshire so that there then does become one alternative to Trump and do, Cruz? John, do you think it is a requirement that there end up with one alternative to Trump and Cruz? Couldn't These, these people are relatively well-funded. Couldn't they all end up staying in the race a lot longer than people expect, and then Trump and Cruz, or Trump or Cruz, maintain this quite large advantage? Possibly. I think not, though. I think we're seeing what's been fascinating to watch this week is the is people have been trying to force a winnowing all kinds of different ways, by through the debates, through writing people off, various candidates off based on things they've said, and no winnowing has happened. And so here this week you had two things. One, you had somebody like Bob Dole saying, boy, Donald Trump may be bad, but he's no Ted Cruz in terms of just disaster. And then you had other other of Cruz's colleagues in the Senate saying, boy, Cruz would be a disaster. So now you have the establishment picking sides in the non-establishment lane, which is known in psychology circles as acceptance, <laughs> which is to say that they're accepting the fact that it's going to be between Trump and Cruz and that there may not be another lane. And therefore, if it's going to be one of those two, they could handle Trump. Now, other people would say this is all mind playing with people's minds, so that, in other words, they're messing around saying Trump would be better in order to elevate him, and then ultimately one of the establishment-type candidates would beat him later in the process. But to your original point, David, they, they could have money to stay alive. The question is whether in the media environment they could withstand that number of losses and being considered kind of a, the loser. 
but as, as the delegates are apportioned, most of them are proportional in these early contests. So if right. you are... So you don't win big, even if you win, right? Right. You, you, and you can win a little as you go along. And then if you, do, if you win Ohio and Florida, for example, those are winner-take-all. So for an establishment candidate, if you can hang on and then do well, you could build up more delegates. Um, but I think, David, it, I think there will be such pressure to, to get behind one person um, because once you get to South Carolina, you know, if it looks like Trump and Cruz are do, Trump and or Cruz are doing well, there's just the I should I think the pressure will be too much to kind of consolidate around one. So the the language of the week, the, the sort of apocalyptic language of the week really came from these Republican establishment figures who were making the case alternately that either Trump or Cruz would be again, to use that word, cataclysmic, it would be cataclysmic for the GOP and perhaps for their the down-ballot races, too. What's the, John, maybe just game this out. What What's the case in for each of them that, that he would be cataclysmic? Why would Trump be cataclysmic? Why would Cruz be cataclysmic? Well, I think both for the same reason, and that is that the Senate is, uh, it's a bad map for Republicans this time around. They've got a lot of Senate, Republican Senate candidates up in states like Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, those are states that are purple battleground states, and the idea is that Cruz and Trump would do terribly in those states um, because they don't, you know, because they don't poll well in the general election context. So you'd lose not only the presidency, but then you'd lose the Senate by a pretty good amount, and the damage that it would do to the party um, as it has to rally behind a candidate and amplify the views of a candidate that are objectionable to a larger portion of the electorate would cause a kind of tattooing and indelible uh, uh, branding of the party through the process and just and, and, and sort of ruin what the party believes in. Um, and in the so longer would... term, it's, it's a bad match for the demographic shift with the growing Latino vote, right, especially with Trump, given how much he's gone out of his way to alienate those voters. That would be with the practical damage of having this tattooing take place. Isn't there also a in the long run we are all all dead kind of case here, which is that if you look at where the energy in politics is these days, now admittedly we're not even at the primary season yet, but it's all it's all with these outsider candidates. And isn't there a case, if I were Cruz or Trump, I would be making it that I am bringing in a huge number of non-voters into this yeah. party who are going to participate in the election, who are going to be activists, who are going to be out there organizing. And yeah, okay, maybe maybe we're going to get a smaller percentage of the small Hispanic vote than we did, but look how many of these new new non-voters we've brought in. It's really it's a, the Barack Obama argument, isn't it? It is the Barack Obama argument, but the problem is it, it falls apart when you get to the problem of governing. So, I mean, you're exactly right, David, and that is the case that both Trump and Cruz are making. And it's a bit more of a sort of silent majority case, too, which is an older argument that we've heard long before um, going back, you know, even going back to Goldwater, which is that um, uh, we'll bring in all these new people. And that's really what America is. In other words, it won't just give us an electoral majority, but it'll put us in touch with the actual kind of gut uh, feelings of the, of the country. The problem is that winning on the policies that are elevating, say, Donald Trump in the primary uh, are the, the the views are totally antithetical to what the people in power in Washington support. So, for example, if you look at Paul Ryan, he supports entitlement reform. Donald Trump doesn't. He supports trade as a part of with Asia. Trump doesn't. He supports and Paul Ryan supports 
uh, a pathway to legal status for uh, immigrants. So those are three big issues on which Donald Trump is in, in totally opposite part of the world than, than Paul Ryan. The reason that matters is that Trump, when he talks about those issues at rallies, they get enormous applause. And so it's not so Trump can change his views, though he probably wouldn't. Um, but the, but the, the the constituency he is excited out there will still be out there and will be furious with Republicans who don't carry out those ideas once they get into office. So Emily, let's talk about Sarah Palin for a moment. Your favorite oh, good! Subject. I'm so glad. I've so been Sarah waiting. Palin's endorsement of uh, of Donald Trump was just fantastic. It was this. This perfervid free association uh, that had all of that that kind of Palin juice that we knew and loved back in 2008, even more so. Let's play a clip, please. Only one candidate's record of success proves he is the master of the art of the deal. He is beholden to no one but we, the people. How refreshing. He is perfectly positioned to let you make America great again. Are you ready for that, Iowa? I have to say, I'm just so sorry that the country's fate is on the line because it was just a genius bringing together of these two personalities. I mean, as one watched, you can only think to yourself, oh, my God, of course. Like, why didn't we all imagine this coming for months and the fact that it happened exactly at such a useful moment and that she was obviously just swanning in her um, media glow. It was just brilliant. It really was as a piece of entertainment. It reminded me yet again that, you know, Trump was a reality TV star. He really knows how to do this part. Do you think, John, that Cruz, now that he's set his mind actually going after Trump, which he didn't do for a long time, is he going to succeed where others have failed? Cruz is, a, is just an utterly formidable political presence. He, I'm astonished each time I watch him. I mean, every time I watch him, I want to punch him in the face, as I've said before. But he is, he's absolutely fluent. He has a quick, smart response to anything you raise with him. Is he going to get under Trump's skin the way nobody else has? And could Trump actually get under his skin? Well, Trump appears to have gotten under his skin. With the citizenship issues? It is a sort of Batman versus Superman, if you'll... I mean, which is to say they both have... I think it's more like, you know, Joker versus... uh, Well, well, you choose it. I don't even know the other one. My point is you have two people who have a very different skill set, but both of whom are good at getting those crowds to roar. Trump does it in a different way. It's more of the reality TV star's way. It's more, you know, when he was gaslighting which I think is probably an inartful application of that term. Oh, I but love nevertheless, it. Nevertheless, um, when he was raising issues about and still is raising issues about Ted Cruz's nationality, how, Cruz was basically incapable of defending himself against those claims. Now, there was a poll I saw the other day where 36% of the people think that he might, he might not be eligible for president. Well, and they're not crazy. Let's just, like, say that while he has the better argument, one thinks the Supreme Court has not directly settled this matter. There you go. Donald Trump has won over Emily Bazelon. <laughs> I did a little But, reading. Emily, come on. If you're going to take out Ted Cruz, take him out for legitimate reasons. No, I'm like, wait. So just... the point is that if Cruz were as talented, as you said, David, he would have been able to find a way to dispatch with that. Um, and it has bollocked him up. He also had a theory and a plan, which was basically to ignore Trump, 
let him fall of his own weight, and this is, articul- this is as Cruz articulated it in his fundraising pitches to donors, let him fall of his own weight, and all of his voters would come to Cruz. So he was not going to mess with them. This was during this period of, of uh, kind of alliance that they had. That strategy was totally, totally didn't work at all. I would so, like to clarify my view. I am not ready to let go of the, the natural-born citizen bone just yet. So here's my point. My point is that Yes, natural-born citizens certainly should include people like Ted Cruz, who were born abroad, in his case, Canada, to U.S. citizen parents, because the citizenship transmits. But that it is a very awkwardly phrased clause of the Constitution that the Supreme Court has not settled. They haven't said what it means. And to be a dunderheaded literalist for a moment, as members of the Supreme Court are sometimes, natural born sounds like born in the United States. Or I don't know, maybe it means just like born. Of, I, don't, I don't know what it means, but it's not crazy to think that there's a tiny bit of uncertainty about this. And if it turned out that the person elected president was ineligible to serve, that would be germane. Ugh, it makes me sick hearing you talk about this, Emily, even Why? though I don't disagree with you. Because it's wrong. Because we all know it's a, it's a, that's a stupid rule. And as a person who believes in this country and believes in the expansion, like the welcoming nature of this country, you should say, you know what, we, are, we just don't care. Hold on. I don't care. Just, even though it with, may be legal uncertainty. Maybe we should take it out of the Constitution then. We should. It's so, a terrible but here's rule. Deal. Can I just so what Donald Trump did is he found this thing and decided to ha- make it enough of a story using his manipulation of the press, but also manipulation of the voters in the Republican Party who love him so, and was able to basically cause Cruz to have to defend himself or have this be the thing that people are talking about instead of some other wonderful thing about Ted Cruz. That skill is the one that goes up against Cruz's skill, which is more suited to the courtroom and the and the debate stage. But even in the debate stage, the last debate, the most talked about moment was this thing about New York values. Where did New York values come from? Out of Donald Trump's mouth, from an interview that, that Trump had with Tim Russert, in which he said, you know, I'm pro-choice, and I believe these other things that tend to be more suitable for New York, because those are New York values and not Iowa values. And yet somehow Cruz lost control of that enough so that Donald Trump turned it into a big 9-11 celebration and had such control of the moment that Cruz had to applaud while on stage for the song Trump was singing to the 9-11 victims. So, um, Genius I, umbrage taking. It's, it, it, his, his skills have been certainly challenged by the, the Donald Trump phenomenon. That I completely agree with you about. All right. Let's move on. Let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for amazingly good prices. They make obsessively engineered mattresses and offer them at shockingly fair prices. $500 for a twin, $950 for a king-size mattress. Compared to industry averages, that is an outstanding price. And Casper mattresses have just the right bounce and just the right sink because they bring two technologies together, latex foam and memory foam, to create better nights and brighter days. And all Casper mattresses are made in America. They also have a terrific risk-free trial and return policy. You can sleep on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery, and there are painless returns. And we have a special offer for you. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com political and using the promo code POLITICAL. 
terms and conditions apply. Just about everything happened with Iran this week. Iran arrested and briefly held 10 U.S. sailors. Then, following certification that Iran had completed steps towards dismantling its nuclear program, sanctions were lifted against the country. Then the U.S. released $1.7 billion in assets that uh, assets plus interest that Iran had been claiming for decades, since 1979. Then there were five Americans released by the government of Iran, and seven Iranians held here were also released. The, the Americans have left Iran and are coming back to the United States. Uh, included in that, those released by the Iranians was this Washington Post reporter, Jason yeah. Rezaian, being held for more than 500 days on really trumped up charges. So Iran is this week, I guess, rejoins the community of nations or community of nations that America is also part of. The president spoke about how this deal has made the world safer. It has cut off Iran's path to nuclear weapons. And we now have somebody we can talk to and deal with and that the, the world is a safer place than it was. The Republicans responding say this is appeasement, that we're weak, that we've capitulated the enemy by trading Iranians held here for, for Americans held there. We have, we've encouraged other people to take Americans prisoners. So, Emily, who is right? Well, I feel like you should answer this because you have such a strong pro-Iran opinion. It does seem like He's an awfully... setting us up so that he can come I know, in right? Yeah, I, I want you to say you've got to say some some terrible anti-Iran stuff, and then I'll... <laughs> I mean, look, who wants to be... I'm too busy signing my check from the Iranian government. Exactly, seriously. Who wants to be pessimistic at this moment other than some of the Republican candidates? I just feel like I really hope this works out. I'm really glad those American prisoners got to go home. It seems like... There are substantial parts of the mysterious and obscure Iranian leadership who really mean it and want this to happen. And they really did, according to the inspectors, dismantle a big part of their nuclear program. It also, though, is kind of crazy that, you know, there was this like Argo-like moment at the airport in which um, Jason Rezaian's wife and mother weren't there. And there was obviously some faction of the Iranian I don't know what bureaucracy that was just trying to torpedo the whole thing. So I just, I don't know. I look forward to learning more about this country. Maybe it will open up a little more as, um, as it comes into your community of nations, David. Well, it's weird the way that people just look at this and they have totally, you know, it's through glass darkly. People have completely different views on what's happening based on their political beliefs. So on the one hand, you had these sailors who were taken, held prisoner by the Iranians, U.S. sailors who had wandered, apparently wandered into into Iranian territorial waters and were taken prisoner. They were photographed, you know, as prisoners and then released after a series of direct negotiations with the United States to uh, counterparts, I guess, at the foreign ministry in Iran. If you're a conservative or you're skeptical, you say, look, they, they've disgraced America. They've embarrassed America. They're, t you know, they're capturing our boats. If you're a supporter of what the president's doing, you say, actually, this was a, a potential for dangerous escalation. Instead, the fact that we were able to talk and had relationships diffused something very quickly, and it became a kind of non-issue. You know, I, I sure know which side of the fence I'm on on that one. But I, but it is weird that there are groups of people who just don't want to. They really have a very, 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 very skeptical uh, view of Iran, and nothing you say will sway them. Well, I mean, you, you could also just be that we don't know. It's not that weird. And not a bad default place to be with a country that is where some of its leaders have talked about the extermination of Israel and where and there's a kind of 
uncertainty about whether the Iranian National Guard really runs things, whether the Ayatollah runs things, or whether the president has a view, you know, and where they did take people hostages on what appear to be trumped-up charges, that's not great behavior. Um, so I think it's I think it's not crazy to be skeptical, and where they're doing, you know, other things in Yemen and Syria and testing ballistic missiles in a way that suggests aggression. So I, but I do, you're, you're quite right. I think the more reasonable approach is to say, yes, these channels existed because of this nuclear agreement, and therefore it's good because they were able to resolve the 10, you know, sailors and and get these hostages out of Iran. But if we had taken an Iranian boat, I don't know, would we have used it for the propaganda purposes that the Iranians did? Probably not. So it's right to be suspicious. It's not just that America was look, looked weak, but that they used it as a propaganda victory. But final last riff here, think about our relations with you know, the Soviets always had this kind of one foot on the brake, one foot on the gas feel to them, where there would be progress, and then they would do something that was, you know, horribly aggressive. Or And so that's probably where we are, or that is where we are with Iran right now. Yeah. Also, the Iranians are not the Soviets. The Irans are a regional power in a very unstable region. They're not the other global superpower. So I don't think, yeah, I don't no, think it's I just, quite... I, I, yeah, I just meant it's a, the nature of the relationship is that it will have sour, it will always have some sour as well as sweet, um, right. or not sweet, but right. you know, it's a, that you can have a relationship that's complex. Right. Do you guys think it is better on the whole that there be, that there be a strong Iran counterbalancing a, a, a Sunni, strong Sunni nations like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, arguably, in the Middle East, or is it was it better when there was more? There was just sort of one set of people we dealt with, and the Iranians were were out of the picture. Better for what? Like better for the people who live there? Well, I think the Saudis. I think there's a general sense that there's going to be a lot more regional conflict now because there's not clearly the U.S. on one side and Iran on the other. That's what Saudi Arabia is doing. Saudi Arabia traditionally a very strong U.S. ally, but what they're doing in Yemen, what they're doing generally, is not to be applauded all the time. That's an understatement. I mean, they're yeah. really quite awful in many ways. They're terrible. But was it better when there was just kind of the simplicity of the Saudis? We have the Saudis and the, the Gulf states on our side and Iran against us. Or is it better now to have this kind of ambiguity where it's not clear? There's lots of sometimes we're first for one, sometimes the other. Well, the old system kept the oil flowing. Now, of course, we don't need oil from that region to the same degree at all. On the other hand, even... With the power dynamic you described, we got embroiled in Iraq, obviously, and then in Afghanistan. And I guess I'm the most interested in thinking about this from the point of view of the people who live in this region, and it just seems so confusing. I mean, the big priority, it would seem, would be to get rid of ISIS and their stranglehold on all of these people who are living under their repressive regime. And it does seem to me like it might be somewhat helpful to have Iran open and a little bit more tilted toward the West in that fight. But I don't know. On the other hand, it's not obvious to me how it affects it exactly. What do you guys think? I, I, I think that a strong Iran is a bad, it makes lots and lots of people nervous. Um, and so that's, I mean, the Saudis among them, obviously, you know, Saudis may be chief among them. And also, you know, they are supporting terrorists in, in lots of other different parts of the world. So I would love it if there could be a settling out of 
why we have some of the allies that we have and how how really different are those allies in terms of the bad things they do from the people we say are our adversaries. You know, because when Mubarak was kicked out of Egypt, there are a lot of people, including uh, Democrats, who say, you know, maybe it was he was not great and there was a there was an uprising in the street and we should support freedom and democracy but the instability created by his ouster has not been wonderful and therefore it's a mixed blessing even though he was a thug and put people in jail without reason and all of the rest i think the obviously the easiness of the cold war in which the goods and the evils were more easily aligned it would be nice if we had a more honest conversation about the imperfections of our allies and the, you know, the sometimes having to deal with the people that we consider our enemies. All right. Let's hear from our second sponsor this week, which is ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring but not sure where to find the best candidates? As a business owner, I can tell you that your company is only as good as the people you hire. This is a true fact. And I can also tell you that posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. But when you're short-staffed, there is no time to deal with dozens of different job sites. There hasn't been until now. Thanks to ZipRecruiter, you can post to over 100 job sites with a single click and be instantly matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes. Just post once, and within 24 hours, watch your candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. ZipRecruiter has been used by over 400,000 businesses, and you can try it right now for free. Getting the right people for your company is critical. Try ZipRecruiter and get your perfect candidate before they go to somebody else. So go to ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest to try it for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. The crisis over Flint's water supply reached new depths this week. A direct apology issued by Michigan Governor Rick Snyder for the state's failures to protect people from leaded, poisonous, polluted water. This crisis started back in 2013 when an emergency receiver, sort of a kind of a dictator of the city, appointed by Snyder, sought to save money by switching the city from Detroit River water to much cheaper water from the Flint River. This took place in early 2014. The 100,000 or so residents of Flint began to get the water from the Flint River. They immediately noticed that it was nasty, smelled bad, it looked bad, it was disgusting. Because of failure to treat this water, this water which was quite corrosive, the pipes in Flint were damaged. The pipes began to leach lead into the water. And there was a spike in lead intake among people of Flint, including among children whom lead intake is extremely dangerous and causes irreversible brain damage. Complaints about the awfulness of the water, which came almost immediately, were essentially ignored, first by local officials, then by state environmental officials. So, Emily, this is a very poor, largely black, highly democratic city. How much do we think that its problems, the, the, the failure of the state to acknowledge its problems, has to do with the fact that it was, it was politically and demographically un, uninteresting to a Republican governor? I mean, I think a lot. I feel like this is the most upsetting story in American politics that I can think of in a while because the dereliction of duties, the consequences were so serious. There's so many people involved. There are 100,000 people who live in Flint. And because it's really hard not to escape the conclusion as you read through these emails that the governor's office put online on Thursday. And we should say that they didn't have to do that because Michigan has basically no Freedom of Information Act. So good for them for putting the emails online. But then when you read 
the back and forth with Rick Snyder's staff and the way in which they were talking about the people in Flint who were complaining. Um, and this like EPA guy who was a whistleblower, they called him a rogue. They were belittling um, the residents and also the pediatrician who seems like she played quite a heroic role in all of this and actually looking again at the lead levels. And, you know, when you... I guess, you know, to really go through it carefully, there were moments in which the State Department of Environmental Quality thought that things were safe. But I just can't believe that a group of people who were more powerful politically in the state couldn't have gotten more of a hearing. There's just this tone of dismissal, not among everyone in the governor's staff, but frequently the sense that, like, these people are just complaining. They're like a bunch of gadflies and a bunch of complainers, and they just need to be quiet. And I just feel like people with more wealth and power, and yeah, white people, just wouldn't have been dismissed that way. I'm sure that's true. I'm I'm sure that is the case, that it, if it were white, if they were richer, any any of those, if they were Republican, if they were Republican, any of those things, they would have been treated better. I, I do want to pause and sh- and sort of just speak out in defense of Rick Snyder slightly, which is that it, that Rick Snyder clearly like totally screwed the pooch on this one, and in a, in a tragic and catastrophic way, and maybe in a, you know way that he deserves to be impeached for, but as a he's a he's a governor whose positions I have no truck with. I don't believe I don't share ideological beliefs, but he's he's tried to be a really efficient, fair-minded governor of the state. I don't think he's not he didn't set out to ruin the government of Michigan. He's he has really tried to do right by the state, even at times at, the, at a cost to him politically. And I like technocrats. I mean, technocrats are, you know, they often fail because they fail to recognize humanity and things like that. But I do appreciate a good technocrat. And I think Snyder thought he was such a person. Then how do you explain this? Because the people who were working for him just totally blew this whole thing off, like 100%. I mean, whenever they had conflicting reports, they went with the waters totally fine, even though like it looked and smelled disgusting and there was E. coli in it and people were like... Total you know, disgrace. Like it's wrong. I mean, he, he it's absolutely wrong. I mean, at least he. So he, is your point that like he gets credit for other things, even though he? he I just feel like I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's a, I, not in the mood to be kind to him. Well, the, his point is, I think the worst thing about you is not the truest thing about you. Not to revive that old saw, but that you can still he can have screwed this up massively and. And, I mean, um, who do you not say that about? I guess. Well, I think I think there are certain other kinds of people who are in power in government who actually do want to destroy or have no interest in the government and don't aren't really particularly motivated by using the tools of government to help all the citizens of the state. And I don't think Rick Snyder is such a person. I think he's a he's he he's genuinely motivated to improve the state in this kind of technocratic way. And he he totally fucked it up. But he, that is what he's doing. The the one one question I have So got, do you conclude anything then from the fucking up of it? Like about that kind yeah. of Republican technocrat? This is not just about Michigan, obviously. This is about all the states in which we think, you know, it's better to have things control closer to home because they can actually smell the water, whereas they couldn't smell it in DC. And so presumably we think that that this should be taken care of. And and so in this case, you have not only did the local state and local totally mess it up, but you had a governor who, for the technocratic reasons, should have been on the case. That also then highlights the race piece of it, because if would you what do you guys think if this were a Democratic mayor 
would the reaction have been different about a state, about a, a city in which the African American population is so high, since the African Americans tend to support Democratic candidates? Well, 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 it would be a big story, and instead of Marco Rubio not knowing the first thing about it and refusing to comment, and Trump as well, they would be all over it as like a failure of government. It would be a big story. Well, but I mean, for the same reason, at the New, as the New York Post argued, uh, all Democrats are are mumbly mouthed about Rahm Emanuel in yes, fair Chicago, whereas Republicans see it as a perfect failure. Right, and I think that's policy. a fair criticism. I, though, want to make a bureaucratic point, which is that you, the, Flint was in receivership. There was a city manager who answered to the treasurer, who answered to the governor. There was a mayor and city council, but they kept passing resolutions to change where the water was coming from, and they had no power. And this just seems to me like a very frightening example of what happens when we put our faith into these bureaucratic receivership arrangements in a way that's not just the very short term. No, 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 no. Bureaucrat. They're not. Receiverships are not bureaucratic. Yes, they are. Authoritarian. They're authoritarian. They're authoritarian. They're They're opposed from above. They're not. They're not institutional. They don't come out of the institution. They're. It's a dictator put on top of elected officials. It's not it's 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 separate from the questions of bureaucracy. But they often come about in situations in which we are supposed to be relying on technocrats who are going to roll up their sleeves and manage things yeah. in a kind of bland right. neutral way. Well, this is like a really scary example of what happens that, when that person Well, this makes is an example decision. of where they went sure, sure they made a terrible decision, but but again, this is a subject I've I've looked at long and hard. DC this, this city I live in and love and know well went into receivership in the 90s um, after atrocious misgovernment and a series of economic problems. And the receivership was a salvation for the city. Uh, there, you can, you can look across the country and there are receiverships which are absolutely terrible. And this is, this is probably going to become exhibit A of the worst possible receivership. And then there are tons of examples of receiverships which put cities back on track. So do you think so the balance think is in favor of receivership? Oh, I think the balance, I definitely think the balance is in favor of receivership. And the, But of course, the cost is that it's anti-democratic. You have a anger and rage among a population which no longer has power over their own governance. And then you have something like this where, where it gets completely ruined. But I don't think, um, I think the receivership is actually, that's an example of an attempt to do the right thing. Like that's an example of attempt to sort of take control of something which is clearly not working and to do something. It's it's bold. It's brave. Like he could have you could just let let Flynn alone. Like why bother? But he actually did try to fix it. Well, maybe the thing to say to one thing you're making me think about receiverships is that they are often a rational choice and there are benefits from them. But this demonstrates that when they go awry, it's terrifying because there's no way right. to stop them. Can we also just go back to the presidential campaign here for a minute. You have on the one hand Hillary Clinton playing president, sending aides to Flint to get information. When I interviewed her last weekend, she described what she had done with her campaign aides as if she were the president. She said, I sent people there, and then they briefed me, and then I said this. And then on the Republican side, there hasn't been much talk about it. What do you make of that, David? And is it, Or is it just the obvious thing that this is a constituency more likely to care about Hillary Clinton than and the Republicans because of the, the nature of the voters who live there. Well, I think certainly. I mean, it's a taking place in a poor black city, and these are not votes that Republicans particularly need to care about. I do think there's – hasn't there been some, like, mumbling from some on the right that this is a problem? This is incompetent government. This is because government is incompetent, which is very funny. That's a 
we've we've made well, government. Well, it's true in this case. The problem is like, what do they want? No government at all. I mean, this is like the most basic rock bottom task of government. Yeah. Now, I think they would also probably argue that Snyder was came in to to. I mean, dealing with Detroit and Flint and all the messes that were left them by Democrats um, is a task that, you know, no one man in a short period of time can handle. And so some things are going to fall through the cracks. That would be another yeah, some defense, things, of, like defense the of him. Health and intelligence. Yeah, yeah. no, I know. I'm not, I'm not, children. Just, I know you're not making the argument. I just feel like that, I don't know, that, that can't be right. I mean, the bigger, larger philosophical argument somewhere is why isn't there a system of government, however you so design it, whether it's a federal system or a local state or by precinct on the block system that can't handle this kind of a gross, huge, gross screw up. The GabFest is sponsored by Credit Karma. You can get some help with your New Year's resolutions with Credit Karma. You might not be able to get those abs you've been dreaming of, but you can take steps to get your credit score in shape. Credit Karma offers truly free credit reports. No strings attached, no credit card required, and it's incredibly easy to use. They don't just show you your score and send you away. They break it down. You can see how your actions affect your score. How if you use, say, too much of your credit limit, your score can go down. And the site is filled with useful information, articles about how closing old credit cards could actually hurt your credit. It's a really easy to use, very intuitive to use app. So visit creditkarma.com slash save right now to get your free report. That's creditkarma.com slash save. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are chattering, chillattering away, squirmishing, squirmishing with your loved ones over a cocktail in the blizzard this weekend, Emily, what are you going to be chattering about i've been watching the netflix drama making a murder which um a bunch of listeners kindly asked me to weigh in on i'm not done i'm close to being done i'm not going to spoil it i'm sure most of you many of you know it's a drama about a man named stephen avery in wisconsin who was wrongfully convicted of a rape that he spent 18 years in prison for then he got out then he was charged with murder and the big question the documentary asks is whether um the local sheriff's office framed him because he was suing them um, for their part in the wrongful rape conviction. I am completely drawn into this documentary. It's very immersive in like the best true crime tradition. You want to know what's going to happen next. I think it could be shorter, but it's so interesting and they have great tape. And I'm also really torn about whether it's manipulating me into feeling like it's so obvious that Stephen Avery is innocent of this murder, that it's crazy that he was convicted as he was. That is not a spoiler. That is like a fact that happened. So I don't know. I was really interested in Catherine Schultz's piece this week in The New Yorker in which she basically pointed out that the filmmakers, at least in her view, seem to have made up their minds about Avery's innocence and they left out some information that might point in the other direction. Yeah, it's just a really like interesting puzzle to think through about um, the role of a film like this uh, and and how to feel about it. So I really recommend it, um, even though I haven't totally made up my mind. All right. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? Well, I have a double chatter uh, about presidential health. So I was spending some time thinking about William Henry Harrison, as everyone does at this time of year. 
as listeners will remember, he's the president who served the shortest amount of time in office. He was the oldest president before Ronald Reagan to actually take the office uh, and then um, died 32 days after his two-hour-long inaugural address, which for a long time was thought to have been what initiated his um, decline because he was the cause of death was, death was pneumonia. And we'll get to the real reason of his death in a second. But while I was reading about that in um, a book called The President's House about the White House, I learned this fun fact about George Washington that when he was sick in New York, the neighbors and townsfolk in New York put straw on the streets around his where he was staying and convalescing so that the carriages and horses wouldn't make noise on the cobblestone streets so that he could get enough sleep. So that's an early a demonstration of New York values. But in Harrison's case, it turns out that it probably wasn't pneumonia. And this is based on a, um, a very tidy New York Times piece by um, Jane McHugh and Philip McCowiak, I think, from March of uh, 2014. So it turns out that, and this is I, I, this rang a bell about other presidents too. But you know, in the um, in the early days of the Capitol, there was no sewer system, and so until about 1850, a lot of the sewage just flowed onto public grounds that weren't that far away from the White House, where it, it stagnated and formed a marsh. So there were the natural marshes of Washington, and then there were the marshes created by the sewage. Then there was more sewage deposited there at government expense each day at the end of the day. Well, as you can imagine, having that much sewage near the White House created all kinds of difficulties with bacteria, salmonella, and other kinds of diseases. And Harrison, turns out, already had stomach issues, which meant he was likely to catch these kinds of things. Two other presidents, James K. Polk and Zachary Taylor, also had severe gastroenteritis. But the problem with Harrison is that he already had a pre-existing condition, which meant he was you know, susceptible to this. And then the doctors did, we talked about this with Garfield, did everything possible to treat him in a way that would only exacerbate his condition. And so the poor guy died uh, on April 4th, and uh, John Tyler was brought into the presidency. But it wasn't because of pneumonia. It was because there was a sewer in the backyard mm. of the White House. That is, that's, that we should have led with that, John. That, that was <laughs> that we broke news today here <laughs> well, on the Gabfest. The New York Times broke it back on the 14th. Um, the, uh, you know, the other thing they did, speaking of lead in the water, they gave him, when he, was, when he was sick, they just kept dosing him with things, including mercury. Oh, God. Yeah, they were always giving people mercury. It's amazing what they, uh, what they did to They'll uh, say that about us one day. Yeah, They'll... I know, exactly. And then they took aspirin or yeah. ibuprofen. All right, my chatter. One quick thing, which is thank you to the various folks who sent me suggestions for Obscura Day events that they wanted to lead or had ideas for. Please, if you have other ones, david at atlasobscura.com. There's so many great ideas that you guys sent me. If you have an idea for some expedition or adventure or some place that, that people should explore on, explore on Obscura Day, please let me know. My real chatter is, so I read um, the Jonathan Franzen book, Purity, in the fall. I did not like it very much, but it is modeled in many ways on the book Great Expectations, the Charles Dickens book, which, like many people, I read uh, as a child and maybe in college as well. And I loved Dickens as a, as a child and as a teenager. I read Dickens voraciously, but I hadn't read anything of his in a while, and so I just was between books, and I picked up Great Expectations the other day. It is so great. Holy <laughs> cow, it's great. I can't believe how good Dickens is. If you have not read a Dickens novel in a while, 
pick one up. Great Expectations couldn't be better. It is, it is so funny. It's big-hearted. It's incredibly cinematic. It's, it's cinematic in a way that modern novels aren't. It just tells you so much about what's going on. It's so vivid and psychologically astute and fun. It's just, I don't even know where Jonathan Franzen gets off trying to pretend his book is Great Expectations. It's just, it's like puny expectations compared to Great Expectations. So check out some Dickens if you have the chance. Our intern is El Biscard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Welcome, Steve, to your new role as our overlord. Andy Bowers also has a new title, which I think is Chief Content Officer for Panoply. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Go to our show page, slate.com slash GabFest, for links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. There's lots of nice conversation there. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Email address is GabFest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. This week, the Edge of Sports podcast has Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You wrote that terrific piece contrasting Trump and Sanders. Do you consider yourself a Bernie Sanders supporter at this point? I like Mr. Sanders' approach. And I remember in 2008 you supported President Obama. Some big NBA personalities were supporting Hillary Clinton. Are you think Sanders more than Hillary is your political cup of tea, if you will? Hear the answer at edgeofsportspodcast.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>